You know what a miracle is? Not what Bakunin said, but another world's intrusion into this one. Most of the time we coexist peacefully, but when we do touch, there's a cataclysm. Like the church we hate, anarchists believe in another world, where revolutions break out spontaneous and leaderless, and the soul's talent for consensus allows the masses to work together without effort. Automatic is the body itself. And yet, if any of it should ever really happen that perfectly, I would also have to cry miracle. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2017, and today for 42 minutes, we'll determine how 11 Knights created a new country and a refuge for the Grail in the first Templar nation. And our guide to the mysteries today will be Freddie Silva, a best-selling author and leading researcher of restricted history, ancient knowledge, sacred sites, and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He is also a leading world expert on crop circles. He has published five books in five languages, and for nearly two decades, he has been an international keynote speaker with notable appearances at the International Science and Consciousness Conference, the International Society for Study of Subtle Energies and Energy Medicine, and the Association for Research and Enlightenment, in addition to the History Channel, BBC, Gaia TV, and Radio. Described by one CEO as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now. He is also a documentary filmmaker and art photographer and leads private tours to sacred sites in England, France, Egypt, Portugal, Yucatan, Malta, Peru, Scotland, and Ireland. Conventional history claims that in 1118, nine men formed the Knights Templar in Jerusalem. But what if it can be proved that the order existed a decade earlier on the opposite side of Europe that the aim to protect pilgrims was a smokescreen, and that in league with the monks of the Order of Cistern, the secretive Order of Sion, the Templars executed one of history's most daring and covert operations, the creation of Europe's first independent nation-state, Portugal. More information about Freddy's work can be found on his website, invisibletemple.com. How are you doing this morning, Freddy? Not too bad, Doug. Thanks for having me on. You bet. I'm I'm really shocked that I had never bumped into you up to this point, but I think Amazon wanted us to get together, and I don't know what it was in in the browser history, but um, uh, you popped up, and then as I began to explore you a little bit, at first on the surface it doesn't really seem like your stuff is all that connected, but then the the deeper I got in, I realized, oh yeah, this is all completely connected. What is your personal history and entry point into this world that you explore in your in your work? Um, I sort of was drawing pyramids when I was three, and uh, I had never really had a problem when I was even a, a young child accepting the fact that I used to have dinosaurs as pets. Um, and lo and behold, you know, decades later, we begin to realize that actually things are much weirder and much more interesting than we've been led to believe. And uh, yes, we have found humanoid prints, footprints uh, petrified uh, in bedrock, uh, walking side by side with dinosaurs. So I think some of us, are, I think we're all, we're all sort of born to do something. Uh, we don't sort of necessarily get it when we're, we're very young, but um, it took me a few years before I sort of worked through the uh, world of 
the modern age going through graphics and photography and advertising. And it actually set up a really nice um, way for me to understand um, these mysteries and how to resolve them. Because uh, part of what I uh, used to do was to tra- take a lot of information from the different points of view and try to synthesize them into a symbol or an image that I can sell a product to people. And um, doing research is not that much different. Uh, now it's just the opposite. You basically take as many points of view as possible, take every piece of available evidence that you can find on a particular subject, you know, approach it with an open mind and just see what happens uh, rather than taking information to sort of fit a a perceived point of view, which really doesn't uh, help anybody. Um, I just kind of basically follow the clues where they go. And if you just allow the uh, evidence to speak for itself, it's amazing where it goes. And uh, that's pretty much how sort of I approach my work. And it's been true for whether I'm researching megalithic sites or the Knights Templar, uh, which actually turns out the stories are actually quite interconnected in themselves. Well, did you have any formal training in... You know, either research or writing, or your your work seems so, uh, you just it so seamless. How did how... yeah? It is weird, actually. I have to say, <laughs> uh, in fact, that the clue to the next book is usually in the last paragraph of the former, and uh, I've, I I guess I should read the last paragraph of what I write because then it gives me a clue as to what I'm going to do a year later. Uh, I haven't learned that lesson yet. Uh, it is funny how all the, all the books that I've written, there's five of them now, and I'm currently working on the sixth. Um, there's a certain thread that connects them all, and uh, I hadn't really planned it that way. Um, no, I think it just goes uh, – I mean, I have a, an informal uh, history training. I mean, I was very passionate about history at school. And uh, one of the things that I really remember, in fact, probably the only thing I really remember of use in school was my history teacher telling me, you know, if you ever really want to find out the truth about anything, and you'd only be scratching the surface because only the people directly involved with any event will know the truth ultimately. But if you want to try and get to close to being under their skin as possible, you've got to understand the people uh, who performed whatever deed it was you're researching, get under their skin, and then go back 50 years and see how all of that came about. What were the foundation processes um, of that particular event? And it's incredible if, um, good advice because it really helps to shape my work in something much better and much more lucid. Uh, but I pretty much do what any uh, academic does in, in a, a college or a, in, or a university environment. I'm just not hampered by the um, sort of the orthodox thinking, uh, which really plagues so much um, academia today, which is everybody has to toe the line on, on a specific consensus point of view. And uh, even though that, that point of view will be shown to be completely unsustainable, and a lot of it is today, uh, there's new evidence coming out every week that's um, literally you know, disheveling the paradigms we've been taught. But uh, a lot of academia just hangs on uh, just for the sake of pride and, and ego to ideas which really no longer hold water. And that's where people like me, the independent um, researchers, we have a much better grasp on reality because we do question things. And if it doesn't work, it gets thrown out. Uh, we just have to keep uh, advancing the theories relative to how much information and how new knowledge uh, comes about every week. So you can't hold on to a theory for too long uh, and hold it too preciously because it's bound to change. And uh, even when I was writing First Templar Nation, and it took 15 years to really piece that story together, um, the theory kept altering again and again because I kept coming up uh, with uh, new evidence all the time, and it really shaped it into the book that it is today. When I came to your work, I was a little confused. I think what what, what happened is that you 
you published your your books at one point in time, and then just recently you republished them all. Is this your new editions with a different publisher? No, the uh, publishing world has changed so much since Amazon basically pulled the rug from under all the authors, and there really have been a, a blessing and a curse, and usually a curse to uh, publishing. Uh, not many people are really aware of this. Um, my first book was actually published by a bona fide publisher, uh, and it was there for about 10 years. It was um, translated into different languages, and then the landscape really changed about um, 15 years ago uh, to the point where you know I could sell a 1,000 copies of a self-published work and uh, make more money than uh, I would if I sold 50,000 copies for a publisher. Um, any, any person will see that that is unsustainable. So... What I do now, I basically publish about uh, 1,000 to 2,000 copies on other, my own imprint, and then I sell the rights to another publisher who would be interested in you know, advancing the, um, the story a bit further and selling it to a different audience. And that kind of works a little bit better because you know, I've got my, uh, my own little following of people uh, around the world, and they're, they're very happy to see things published you know, in, a, in a well-designed manner, in a well-thought-out manner. Uh, and uh, be the first to hear about it. And then it goes off and um, they, uh, other people get to hear about it two years later. So it, it's a mix. So the last two books that have been released have been uh, re-released uh, as is exactly the same books that I self-published. There's no difference between them. Uh, they just happen to be a little bit better designed. Yeah, they're they're very sharp. Could you walk us through... I mean, so have, you, you mentioned how the, the next book kind of grows out of the preceding book. Um which which book came first? Well, the first one was the uh, Secrets in the Fields, which was uh, a scientific exploration of the crop circle phenomenon to really put uh, away the idea, the misconception uh, that's been uh, deliberately fostered onto the public that the crop circles are made by people. Uh, they're not. Uh, that's been completely shown that uh, people who claimed that were actually paid by the, the British Ministry of Defense. There was a secret service that was involved in this, and the FBI was involved, among other people. And uh, it was really a very in-depth uh, understanding of the scientific uh, evidence to back up that um, phenomenon, and it really worked quite well, actually. Um, and then from that, uh, I really sort of began to get the notion that the crop circles are really based on the same principles and laws as ancient temples, which led to uh, me writing The Divine Blueprint, uh, which, again, is the um, story of how sacred sites became sacred. Uh, where do they come from? Where do the megalithic temples have their origin? Who put them there? And how back does this go? And, of course, it goes back way, way uh, a long time ago to another civilization that was here 11,000 years ago, most of which which has perished in the flood. So, again, it's a very in-depth understanding of uh, what it means to have a temple or a sacred space. And uh, then I got involved in the Templar book, and I had to put it down because there was something missing. And uh, only by understanding the, the mysteries teachings and the concept of how temples are built did I really finally understand the spiritual aspect of what the Templars were searching for in Jerusalem. And it really cha sort of changed my whole perspective on things. And in the meantime, while I was researching that, uh, I did The Lost Art of Resurrection, uh, which was something that really began to pieced together while researching the Templar book when they kept addressing uh, themselves as the risen from the dead. And I kept hearing this phrase uh, also in temple ceremonies and also in early Christianity. 
and I wanted to find out what it was really about. And it really turns out that it, um, uh, the early Gnostic Christians were practicing a very, very ancient tradition of uh, ritual initiation where no one was nailed to a cross and no one actually physically died and got back uh, from a grave. It was all a metaphor, uh, which is what really riled the early Christians, including some of the apostles who claimed that the whole resurrection story created by the church was a complete fraud, which it is, and it can be proved so. Uh, so again, it was just looking at the concept of why some temples around the world, uh, there's no one buried in them, like the Great Pyramid. Um, you know, no one's ever been, no bodies have ever been found, and it really shows us that there was a huge um, method of initiation that was being done all around the world, and still is, by the way. Uh, I mean, Central America in the Yucatan, there are still initiation ceremonies where people are literally risen from the dead. Uh, but again, it's all about an out-of-body experience, it's a shamanic experience. Um, and uh, then I think I wrote one on Chartres Cathedral, which is really a me book. Uh, it was I, I got kicked out of the of Chartres Cathedral for trying to teach people about the hidden mysteries of that building, hmm. of which there are so many. Uh, they didn't like that, <laughs> so I got my own back on them by writing a very uh, short little um, uh, tour guide, which you can read while you're walking the cathedral or just read at home. It stands by itself. Um, and it's doing very well, actually. Uh, people are beginning to realize that, my God, there's so much more to Gothic cathedrals than we've been told. So, And uh, currently I'm, I'm researching uh, material for uh, this lost civilization, which is now under the ocean, and doing it from a different point of view, from the indigenous point of view, which is very different from the European sort of Caucasian model, uh, where you know people keep saying, well, there's no such thing as Atlantis or Lemuria. Well, I hate to say this, but... Once you've traveled through South and Central America, as I have, and talking to the uh, indigenous elders, they'll say, well, you'd be amazed to know that Lemuria is still taught in schools in the Andes today. It's, for them, it's a fact. It's a historical fact. So it'll be a, another eye-opener to try and sort of show that uh, we are literally the um, progeny of a, a very, very ancient civilization. Well, so back to the Chartres Cathedral, it, isn't it built on a, an existing site itself? Oh, many sites. Uh, there's uh, Even the cathedral itself is the continuation of three or four other cathedrals that uh, burnt down. Uh, that is built on top of a Carolingian chapel, which is built on the Roman temple, which is built on top of a Druid site, which itself, and now we're talking 30 feet below the ground here, uh, is built on a uh, what looks like to be a, either a dolmen or a massive uh, stone circle. And uh, when uh, there was a seismic event back in the 17th century and another one in the early 50s, um, the, um, uh, there were archaeologists that actually went uh, into the uh, underground part, portion of the cathedral and actually found the original site. And it's kind of funny because historians today will poo-poo the idea that there's anything under there, but you can actually go and see it. There's a, a tunnel, and uh, part of the ancient site is still there. So this is what I mean about academia and digging itself into a hole, and then new information comes out, and they just don't want to see it. So um, Chartres Cathedral is one of the is a very, very, very ancient sacred site indeed, like like most of Chartres actually. Just this past month, on there was a there was a. a blurb on CNN that I brushed up against about under Bloomberg News in London, there's a, a Mithraeum. So what is it with these ancient sites? It, it, what, what What is the power? You know, could you demystify that a little bit? 
Yeah, in fact, if you go to uh, Cincinnati, to the corner of First and Main, you will find a Procter & Gamble building, and that sits on one of the biggest Native American mounds in North America, or what it, or what it used to be the, uh, the mound. Um, it's, uh, part of it's deliberate, and part of it is actually um, a misconception. It really goes back to the understanding of what sacred sites really are. I mean, we, you know, we're obviously uh, seduced by the image of the sites, you know, like a pyramid or a, uh, a mound or a dolmen, um, and you know, these things are wonderful to look at. But what they really represent is that they're making uh, a physical impression. Um, uh, they're trying to visualize what's actually there in the invisible, because uh, with the technology that we now have, we can be able to prove that all sacred sites, without exception, are literally built at the crossroads of the Earth's energy currents. Um, science calls them uh, telluric currents. Uh, some people call them um, spirit paths. The Chinese call them the Lung Mei. I mean, these things have been known for uh, for antiquity. And uh, these electromagnetic um, tubes literally crisscross the entire globe. And the thing is that when they cross, they create these little vortices called conductivity discontinuities. Now, if you don't want to remember that, which is the scientific way of uh, describing it, you can call it by what the Sioux Native Americans call it. Uh, They call it scan. So they knew about these things uh, thousands of years ago. And they say that uh, all around the world, that whenever you interact with this energy, it creates a kind of a, a numinous state of mind within the individual. It puts you into sort of a, a state of receptivity where you can access a, a, a natural reference library. It's almost like a shamanic experience, but it's much more than that. And um, this energy uh, is usually situated on geomagnetic hotspots as well. So you have this long history of people interacting with these temples, which are literally built uh, on top of these uh, hotspots of energy in order to make sure that the energy stays very clean, it doesn't go away, and it can be worked from generation to generation. And, of course, our prayers are part of that. You know, Part of the, um, the way that the human body works is that whenever you throw your focused intent into anything, that intent is a packet of electromagnetic energy. And uh, if you focus your intent on a specific uh, element, which itself is energetic, you can actually, to a certain degree, you know, manipulate that energy as well. So back in the old days, when all this was being done for the greater good, uh, we would go and sit on these sites to either heal ourselves. And uh, even in, um, in Europe in the 19th century, uh, there were doctors in Paris and London and the major cities in Europe that would send people to be cured, to go and sit on ancient sacred sites or even holy wells. And the rate of healing was really quite dramatic. So there was something about modern medicine that even modern medicine couldn't fix. So this was all for the greater good. The, and then, of course, the church comes along and starts superimposing their, their churches on top of the old sites and even destroying the old sites because they were trying to harness the same energy, but they couldn't do it. They didn't have the understanding of it. And this is where suddenly you get into the Middle Ages and into the uh, Age of Reason, so-called, where they literally lost the plot. If you couldn't really understand it scientifically, it was all just devil worship or superstition. And this is where we come to a lot of these buildings in the modern era of uh, societies, you know, um, like the Bilderbergers and Potter and Gamble and all, all of that. And I think that there's people in them, and it depends who you're talking to, 
who uh, understood these concepts because a lot of them are Freemasons and the original Freemasons, uh, the Scottish Rite Freemasons, also taught this information. Now, they're on the right track. There are other Freemasonry uh, people like the London Rite who have no idea what the hell they're doing. And these people used to tend to be the old boy network, like the Skull and Bone Society at Yale, for example. And they also would build their uh, buildings and um, you know, headquarters on top of these old sacred sites, hoping to get back some special powers for them. And some of them do do some very nefarious things with them because they understand how it really does work. A lot of them have no idea what they're doing. It. It's more of a symbolic thing, as though by you know, stepping their... Um, uh, personality on top of these ancient sites, they hope to actually amplify their ego and their power. It doesn't really work that way. It's really in their head. But the concept is right. The concept is correct about you know working with this energy if you stand on a specific hot spot of the earth. There are things that do, that, uh, do happen to you uh, in a very positive way, but unless you have the, under, the original understanding and you go through the process, uh, it just becomes symbolic. Yeah, okay. So probably about 10 years ago or a little more it seemed like there was a generation of adepts that kind of came to this these traditions and one of the one of the entry points for a lot of folks especially in this audience is a a book like uh the secret teachings of all ages by manly p hall and so it oh, just have a copy. well what do you think of of that work i mean and so like when as i got to know your work a little more i realized that this kind of is the heart of it this idea of the mystery schools and what their uh, intention and focus was. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I've been able to trace back the uh, mysteries teachings to China uh, in about uh, 5000 BC when I was researching the last art of resurrection. It's amazing how all the story of Jesus really is, actually because essentially what, that's what it comes down to in the modern era. And uh, the big uh, clue here is about, or, or the big manner in which differentiates the few from the many was the fact that you had to go through a process of initiation which took up, uh, up as much as three years of your life. And, it had to be, and you had to be very serious about this. Uh, the first year basically was spent uh, just sort of observing uh, the individual to make sure that he or she could actually be trusted with specific information. Because again, you're dealing with the manipulation of energy uh, and you can do good things with it or some very nefarious things with it. We don't want the latter. We want the, uh, the good things. So what happened was is that uh, the teachings uh, we used to be given in public uh, in a very lighthearted way. So um, they used to be minstrels and storytellers, and you'd sit around the fireplace, and uh, they would obviously, you know, uh, talk about a certain um, mystery teaching by wrapping it in this wonderful story where there's dragons and there's gods and there's uh, magical things, but. The story would be a wonderful way to sort of keep the information alive because you remember this stuff. It's much more than reading a dry history book. So within those myths, there was a lot of truth, except that unless you understand the metaphors and the symbols, they're really hard to understand. So among in those audiences, uh, there'd be a couple of people that would say, wait a minute, um, if I read between the lines of what you're saying, that actually should mean this, that, and that. And that's how these wisdom keepers would say, Oh, we got two people here who are a little bit more enlightened than the rest. Let's take them in. 
and that's how you access the uh, the mystery schools. So you're in there for the first year. You'll be you'll be taught some lesser mysteries, uh, a, a kind of um, a lightweight version of the deeper stuff. Um, it, I, I don't want to sort of say, uh, um, say that that's what um, Manly P. Hall was doing with Secret Teachings of All Ages, because there's a lot of really heavy stuff in there. But that's how uh, Manly P. Hall also did it in the 1920s. Uh, he would put out that book, uh, sanctioned by the um, uh, the various people that he was working with, as a way to pull more people into the mysteries teachings. So. The first year in the in the mystery teachings, you'd be given sort of lightweight stuff, uh, the bigger concept of the, how things work, and you'd be judged for your level of uh, responsibility and also for your consciousness. And if you pass the grade, then the second year you go on to the really deep stuff. And by the time you get to the third year, now you're dealing with the true mysteries of life, which has nothing to do with the physical world. It's all to do with uh, energy. It's about to do with geometry, the application of certain talismans, which when you combine these with your own God-given power, uh, makes you into a very dangerous weapon, a very potent weapon. Uh, so this is why the stuff had to be used for the, in the right context. You had to be taught how to actually use this for the greater good and also for the empowerment of others and yourself. But you know, everybody has to go up on the same level. Um, and the, eventually, after all of this uh, tuition, the deeper mysteries concern the actual mysteries of the body and how it works with the, uh, with the universe. And it's mostly to do with the um, manipulation of energy within yourself, which is to do with emotion. You have to learn how to control your emotion. Uh, it's actually a very interesting word. It's uh, you know, emotion, energy in motion. And once you understand how to control your body's own ability to create, then you can, uh, you're ready to go for the final procedure, which uh, was really harrowing. I've, I've um, spent a lot of time researching uh, the uh, surviving accounts of people who actually did the final initiation, which, by the way, the word means to become conscious. That's all it means. But the final ritual involved an out-of-body uh, ceremony in which you actually had an induced near-death experience, which sounds really harrowing, uh, for which they actually have to take a poison uh, in which they would um, be looked after by the priestesses who had the highest level of initiation in the temple. And they looked after you while you left the body for anywhere between three and five days. And you went walking about in the other world as real as you would be going shopping for vegetables. Uh, it wasn't a shamanic experience. It was a real a leaving of the body and being very conscious of where you were because when you came back, you were supposed to come back with very important information about your purpose in life and how to apply that. So we have people like Plato, Pythagoras, Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton. All of those people went through the same initiation, and that's how they made huge strides in their work. And, of course, they were uh, scions to other people, uh, and we still honor them today. So this was a very important um, method in order to allow you to uh, learn about the true mysteries of life so that you can become a more awakened person. And this is why they call these people the risen or the risen from the dead, because everybody else was walking around life you know, uh, uh, dead there to the world. They, they were born, they had a difficult life, and they died. And they thought, this is all there is to life. It's just a physical world full of problems. Well, the risen, or the few as they call themselves in the uh, Near East, they basically had seen the bigger picture, and they already had crossed into the other world. They came back and realized there's a lot more going on in the universe, and it's a lot more wondrous. We just have to know how to handle it, and we have to know how to use it properly. So that was the, imp the importance of being taught in the mysteries teachings, and why people like uh, the Catholic Church never really got hold of this, and why 
they basically exterminated all the um, Gnostic Christians in the early years. Uh, they just would not let these uh, people in to understand the secrets because they would be used to control people, which, of course, they've been proven absolutely correct. Well, you, you mentioned the Age of Reason, and, the, and then we have the Catholic Church, and it, it feels like if you go forward from that point, you end up where we're in such a materialist world these days where these symbols are completely concretized and we're stuck in the symbols themselves and we can't break through to the deeper meaning. I wonder if there, you know, if this tradition goes on in secret, you know, are there adepts that are able to do the lost art of resurrection? Yeah, it's still going on in uh, certain parts, uh, more sort of remote parts of the world where uh, it really takes quite a trek to go and find people who are still practicing the real uh, initiation ceremony. Uh, they're still being done in Guatemala uh, and in Central America and the deeper parts of the Andes. Uh, it, and it almost, almost happens by magic. It's almost like you kind of get this feel to go traveling and then somehow these shaman actually find you. And uh, I've been very privileged to actually meet quite a few of them. And uh, we were sharing information and they were amazed to find that when I was telling them that these uh, teachings were being taught in the other side of the world uh, with exactly the same symbols. And they had no idea. They thought it was unique to that particular part of the world. Um, so... A lot of it has been lost, absolutely. I mean, we, we do go through ages, and uh, the different ages are there for us to try different uh, methods. But I do think that there is a resurgence today of, uh, of spirituality because we're so fed up with uh, what little uh, materialism has given us. Uh, we're stuck in this sort of political dead end, as we can see right now uh, here in the States. So people begin to take charge for themselves, and I think that's ultimately what you're supposed to do with this information anyway. You're supposed to be your own teacher. You're supposed to find your own way. But along the way, it's always useful to have information from people who really know and that's where you really have to basically just trust the process and go uh, walk about and ask, ask yourself some serious questions. What is it are you really, really looking for? And trust your gut feeling and go um, to places that you're attracted to and magic just begins to happen. Uh, and I'm talking from personal experience as well where, you know, uh, 20 years ago, I mean, I didn't know half of the things I know today. And I consider myself so fortunate to have bumped into the right people who have kind of, you know, they haven't sort of steered me in a certain direction, but they've showed me uh, what is right and what really is incorrect. And it's helped me to sort of find my own way and trip over myself, get up, and then do it properly. And that, there's no substitute for that. You have to do it for yourself. But you also have to remember that there's a lot of the old mysteries teachings that are literally all around you in modern life. I mean, for example, Star Wars. Uh, I don't know whether Lucas was channeling or not. or uh, He's never been very open about it. Uh, he's hinted about it. Uh, but if you strip uh, the space age theme away, it literally is the path of the initiate um, uh, that sort of starts under light. It gets seduced by the dark side and then returns at the end of death to be reborn. I mean, that's the same story as the... Uh and the Holy Grail, the same story as Jason and the Argonauts. Um, they're both ex uh, all versions of the same concept, uh, the enlightenment of the initiate through trial and tribulation to become a much more polished stone at the very end. So if you look at a lot of stuff like that, like uh, a lot of Disney uh, uh, thing movies, like um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, if you read through the actual script, you begin to get a lot of information out of it. And that's how they get away with doing what they do in this day and age. Uh, kind of like when you, you know, the Templars in the Middle Ages, when uh, they were trying to build the Gothic cathedrals, uh, which essentially are the same 
versions of a, of a great pyramid. Except back then, of course, you couldn't build a great pyramid in the middle of Europe. So they basically just sort of, you know, they just changed the format a little bit, but they were teaching exactly the same thing. So, um, the, the, you know, the, the, this is a very sort of perpetual human uh, problem uh, that we have. We seem to think that things are so much better back in the old days. Well, in a way they were, but they're also much more brutal. Um, we've come a long, long way, but we're still in this sort of process of constant um, change and uh, purification. Uh, and I think that the uh, mystery schools and the teachings are always there. They've always either gone underground or they are overt. It really depends who's in power at the time. So if you look like, uh, deep enough and you f- sort of follow your heart and you know look carefully, you'll find that the information is all around us all the time. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Grail. So in our materialist world, that's you know it, it's it's this this uh, cup that was both used as in the Last Supper and then also to capture Jesus's blood on the cross. Is there is there any other truth to this object, or is it an object at all? Um, not really. <laughs> Again, it's it was all completely uh, distorted by the church. Uh, you have to understand that in the uh, you know two thousand years ago, there's a big struggle for power. Uh, when the Roman uh, um, government basically collapsed, and uh, you had the Gnostic Christians who were following a very, very old tradition of mysteries teachings, uh, including some of the original apostles, by the way, whose gospels were eliminated from the Bible. And when you read them, you'll understand why. I mean, they really were saying that the whole story of Jesus has been completely distorted. Uh, and I remember the Apostle Thomas writing that anybody that believes in, the, in the, the fact that this guy was nailed to a cross is confusing a spiritual truth with an actual event. And even the Quran says the same thing. And uh, when you realized how many people were murdered by the church, and I mean murdered uh, by the tens of thousands, if not the millions, you, you look at all of these people and what they had in common, and they all say exactly the same thing. So you have to sort of basically uh, look at this from, from that particular point of view. And uh, the Grail is one of the biggest stories that comes out of that. Now, I trace this, the Grail uh, to ancient Sumeria. So now we're talking 3,500 BC. And it's found in the story of Inanna, who was one of the high priestesses of the temple at the time. And she was part of a divine bloodline. Uh, this is going back now to 11,000 years when there was another civilization here on Earth that was said to be divine, and they eventually intermarried with humans. And in their bloodline, there was something very unusual. Um, they seemed to have the ability to, let's say, have one foot in both worlds. Uh, that, uh, that bloodline allowed people to be great healers, great teachers, great um, rulers. Uh, they had the ability to have foresight and clairvoyant ability. So they wanted to maintain this in the family, so to speak. And uh, in 3,500 BC, you hear about this thing called the Graal. And it's really uh, spelt like that in the Song of Inanna in Sumeria. And what they're discussing is, is, a, is a metaphor. And uh, you, you, you get the, to read about the Graal uh, as a kind of cup in which is deposited the nectar of life. And this nectar of life is essentially the sum of all knowledge that exists in the entire universe. And it was embodied by a divine virgin. Now, stop me if this sounds familiar. Um, and basically, how the ancients figured this out, and you have to give them credit for this because it's beautiful. The, the reason that, you know, in the beginning, there was darkness. There was, there was a God, there was a creative force, and everything was in the dark. And then, of course, we have the story we know so well. There's a big bang, and then there's light, and there's sound, and then there's, you know, matter, and the seven days, and all this stuff. 
And um, they said, well, before that, if, if this happened out of a God, then that God had to be in the darkness, and that God must have known everything because he, cre- he or she created everything from that understanding. So therefore, all wisdom, all knowledge that uh, exists must reside in the dark. And because all the knowledge is expansive, it has to be embodied in the kind of divine virgin. And that's where we get the concept of the black virgin statues throughout Europe, you see. It has nothing to do with the fact that the black virgin was, was Nubian or African. Maybe she was, but that wasn't the point. It was all a metaphor. So you fast the story forward. Uh, 3,000 years, you end up in the Middle East, and you end up with uh, John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene, who, of course, were the principal people that the Templars supported, not Jesus. Uh, he was basically a, a sideline for them. And that's where part of the story of the uh, understanding of the Grail really comes through, because Mary Magdalene was part of that spiritual tradition of the priestesses of the temple. She even wore the same red robe that the priestesses had originally uh, worn. They, uh, they called it the robe called, uh, was called Ritu, from where we get the word ritual from. And it literally means in Phoenician, truth. So they represented truth. And um, so the grail in itself is a metaphysical concept. It literally means that when you undergo the process of initiation, which is so beautifully uh, designed within the grail story, which again is a retelling of Jason and the Argonauts and the story of Osiris and Isis, uh, literally just redesigned, republished for a, a medieval audience. Because obviously, you know, the old stories of Osiris would never would have worked. Uh, when you see it from that point of view, it begins to make a lot of sense. But now, here is the um, other side of the uh, of the story, because as a cup, it also is a symbol of a person that carries the actual bloodline through the ages. And uh, two thousand years ago, as I said, that would have been Mary Magdalene, and of course, her consort was Jesus. And it's been well proved already that they had children. And that's where you get the story of the bloodline and the grail being uh, suffused throughout Europe. Uh, and I believe from my research that um, you know, one of the resting places of the grail is actually in Portugal, in a, one of the most famous Templar buildings uh, that's ever been built. Uh, except it's not the building itself that is important, it's the process that takes place inside it. So it goes back to our earlier question about what the temples stand for. Well, the Templars were building these, uh, their buildings in exactly the same ingredients as the ancient sacred sites. They would be built on uh, places that were suffused with earth energy. And inside those temples, there were these chambers where they did their out-of-body ceremonies, the most secret initiation of all. So there's your answer to the grail. The grail is not a thing necessarily. It's a location where you are able to go out of body and discover this wisdom. You are drinking from the cup of everlasting life. And what you're drinking is the pure knowledge of the divine virgin with whom stands all the wisdom in the the universe. But you only understand that unless you actually go and do the mysteries teachings and then you understand the symbology. So to actually look for an actual cup of Christ that Christ drank at uh, um, uh, the Last Supper, kind of yes and no. The symbol is there. uh, Christ was actually drinking, uh, metaphorically drinking of that knowledge because he was showing others, I've already done this initiation. I've already risen from the dead. Uh, and, but it, I wasn't nailed to a cross and I didn't get up physically from the dead. It was all part of an initiation ceremony. So technically it's correct, but yet in reality, it's not a physical object at all. So then are the Templars then responsible for in some, somehow the, the, the founding of uh, like liberal Western society on some level? 
Yeah, they were trying to basically uh, bring back a sense of true Christianity, uh, which is actually much more akin to Buddhism than anyone would believe. Um, you have to understand what was happening back in the Middle Ages in Europe. I mean, it was barbarism. Uh, the church had basically controlled the entire continent. Uh, if you didn't uh, accept their dogma, you'd be burnt alive at the stake. Now, it doesn't sound like a very nice religion to me. Um, so you have people who are dirt poor. Uh, it's a, an economy based on plunder. And in the middle of all of this, you've got these people that show up dressed like the Essenes 2,000 years earlier, behaving just like the Essenes in Jerusalem, in fact, practicing what these very mystical groups of people had done for thousands of years. Uh, most of the Templars actually didn't do any fighting at all. They were mostly uh, uh, practicing ministerial college. And the things that they said and they did um, did not sound like people who basically you know, went into a, a group to be a bunch of guys to go out killing Arabs. That is, that's what the Crusaders were doing. So the Templars are bringing back uh, this resurgent um, spirituality into pockets of Europe, which are literally on their knees, uh, physically and metaphorically. And, of course, they were loved for this. So this is how they got so rich so quickly. Uh, people were, were more than glad to give them land and whatever little they had in order to be taught the bigger mysteries of life. And they were protected for this. I mean, they, uh, the Templars and the, um, the Cistercian monks, who basically also were the Templars, they basically founded schools for the poor. Uh, they would uh, teach people how to you know, gather together in, in unions, in a way, to basically help themselves uh, create agriculture, to feed themselves, um, animal husbandry, how to basically... Um, uh, they would also ad adopt uh, the idea that you had to have a sort of a social welfare system for the uh, people who could not look after themselves. They would do hospitals for the poor, and also they would look after the sick, the infirm, and the elderly. Now, that sounds like a utopia in a time when everybody was, you know, the, the average age was about 30, uh, life expectancy. So no wonder they were very popular. They were basically bringing back this wonderful system of resurgent spirituality. But it was nothing new. Um, it literally was the continuation of what so many other um, spiritual sects throughout the world have done for thousands of years. And that's what makes it much more interesting. Well, so I would say that the greater mysteries of life and spirituality in general was really important, you know, 2010, 2012, and it felt like that was something that people were interested in, but I would say that it's less so now, is my impression. What, what kind of impression do you have about now and, and where we're headed? You know, what, what is our moment saying to us? Oh, I think there's much more going on behind the scenes that you that you might think. I mean, I um, you know I do a lot of uh, touring around the world, and uh, I've spoken in places you've never even heard of. Uh, and in fact, one of my um, largest concentrations of people on my mailing list is actually in Ohio, and I've been to towns in Ohio you'll never uh, uh, hear about, and the places are packed. And, um, you know, these, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes where people are looking for their own way through life, uh, more or less spurned on by the uh, political events and the uh, situation where they, re they really uh, come to realize that uh, by their actions, uh, governments don't give a damn about people, or at least not mo most of the ones I've seen so far. So it's actually forcing the political situation in many countries around the world, not just America. Uh, it's forcing people to find their own way. Uh, they recognize that religion is bankrupt. And the, all of these things are having a deliberate effect on forcing people to find their own way to their own inner spirituality. And I think that's what's really going on. Um, there's a lot of help out there uh, if you just care to look for it. So I do feel that um, 
uh, you know, the, the situation is much more positive than uh, we think because, you know, good news never makes the front page of the media. It's kind of sad. Uh, and again, you brought up 2012, and, uh, and there's a wonderful sort of uh, point there. You know, so many people thought that they're going to be suddenly taken, uh, all their burdens would be lifted by somebody else. Uh, aliens would come down and help us out. Uh, that's not what 2012 was about. It literally uh, meant uh, a closure of an age and a start of another. But it's, um, it really is, it was kind of a fulcrum point. Uh, it's, uh, we, we have a sort of a window of opportunity of about 100 years either side to get this right. Um, 2012 was really like a, a, a click that says, okay, well, the last age is now done. We're now going to begin looking at things from a different point of view. And you, you see it happening in pockets all over the place, and they don't draw attention to themselves. Uh, and the funny thing is, of course, that so many people were bought into this concept of 2012 and instant salvation, and it hasn't happened, and they've gone back to their old uh, um, ways of behaving. So you have to understand that you know, the, the world cannot be saved. Um, that's not what the earth is about, nor is incarnation what it's about. It's about you finding your own way through life uh, within a certain paradigm and doing the best you can and leaving uh, the planet in a better way that you found it. Uh, so it's a bit of a personal journey. Uh, earth is a bit of a, a sandbox, if you like. You know, Some of us come here to build sandcastles and some people come here to kick the sandcastles down. And that's how it's always been and that's how it always will be. And I think if you can just accept that for a second, you don't have to believe it. You just accept that. It makes a lot of sense why some people are getting it right and some are getting it completely wrong. Uh, Earth is a place where old souls are born and where new souls are born. And some people get it from an early age and some it takes them their entire lifetime to get it. But as long as you get it before you actually die, then you've made huge progress. And that's what it's all about. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to Freddie Silva on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his work at his website, invisibletemple.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you'd like this podcast, check out more as currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. Then he saw the rich Grawl enter through a door to serve the food. It promptly put the bread down in front of the knights.